Scripture today is from Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is God's word. I asked Carrie for Majestic, and that was wonderful. Thank you. So here we are, the very beginning of the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Genesis. Um, why are we looking at the very beginning? Um, because this is the beginning, the origin, the root, the source of Christianity and everything that we are here to celebrate and worship. The first word in Genesis uh, is in Hebrew, beritza. It means beginning, origin, birth. And the word that we use, Genesis, is the, the Greek translation of that, beginning. And therefore, all the themes of the whole Bible are right here. And to understand how the Bible unfolds, you need to look at this, the very beginnings, the root, the source, the origin of all things. It's also widely misunderstood, I think, and controversial. At the beginning of the summer, I drove down to Chattanooga, Tennessee for our denominational meeting and um, took two days and I listened to the radio. And as you go further south, the accents get stronger and the country music increases and the Christian radio shows proliferate. And it is amazing, at least it was amazing to me, how much disagreement there was, oftentimes, about Genesis. So... We're going to look at Genesis, but I, I, ha, I want to give us one warning, and this is for all of us, for each other. Our denomination is quite conservative theologically, but does not require churches or pastors to have one view on Genesis. There are a range of views, and I want you to bear that in mind as we go through it. It is very easy for Christians to divide themselves over theology. If you look at the history of the church, it's filled with ruptures and splits and controversies and arguments. So can we agree that we're going to go through Genesis and we're going to be generous with each other? I'm going to try to point out the various views. We as a church do not have a single point of view. I do not have a single point of view. And our denomination does not. So let's allow ourselves a little diversity of opinion and not beat each other over the head. As you've heard me say before, one of my earliest mentors said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus and him dying on the cross for each of us. Not arcane details about things that are unclear or are ambiguous. All right? So let's have a look at it. In the beginning... God. That's how it starts. 
First notice the beauty, the simplicity, and the directness of the words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no argument here. There's no discussion. There's no attempt to convince or to explain or to give motives or reasons. Direct statement of simple facts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can either disagree and shake your head and turn away, or you can ask, how do you worship such a God? But it's not an argument. It's a statement. There's no machinery. There's no mechanism. Nothing has to be conjured or built first. God doesn't have to do anything except create. Speak the word, and it is done. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Boom. Or perhaps bang. It all starts with God's word. In the beginning, God. So there's much you can say about that, but there's at least two things that jump out. The first is God's self-sufficiency. Before there was anything, God was. God is. God will be. God's existence does not depend on anybody or anything else. You know, you sometimes hear that God requires worship or prayers to keep going somehow. God was quite happily God before there was anything, before there was anybody. God is utterly self-sufficient, independent, unique. And something else. God is self-existent. What does that mean? It's a theological term, aseity. Logically, if there is anything at all, if anything exists, the question is, what caused that to exist? And then what caused that to exist? And what caused that to exist? And you chase the causal uh, origin back and back and back and back and back. Logically, if anything exists at all, there must be something that there is that is self-existent, that is contains its own source, its own origin, independent of anything external. And you might disagree with this. You might think that it's just a, a matter of words, but right here, the Bible is saying God is self-existent. The uncaused cause, the primal source of everything. He doesn't need anybody or anything. And therefore, anything that he does is purely his choice. He's not compelled. He's not required. He's not pushed to do anything. God is the only truly free agent. Creating freely and deliberately, only because he chooses to. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Created here is a Hebrew word, bara, used exclusively of God in the Bible. Other words are used when human beings make or form or build things, but never bara. It's only what God does. Because when God creates, 
He doesn't shape something that pre-existed. He creates new, fresh, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And because he doesn't rework existing stuff, because he's not constrained by any previous design or limit, God's act of creativity is pure. Not only is it his free choice, it is unconstrained by anything prior. God creates out of nothing all that is freely and deliberately and purely because he chooses to do so. No compulsion. Nothing beyond himself that he has to consider. And so creation is not an emanation from God. The creation is not part of God. We are not part of the same substance somehow extruded from God. There is a distinction between God as creator and his creation. God is divine and we are not. He is creator and we are creatures. And so many theological problems can be resolved if you just remember that distinction. God is not some big superhuman being. He is utterly transcendent and different from us. Not like us at all. Pure spirit. The three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who become one. Utterly different from us. Because he's the creator, and we're his creatures. God created the heavens and the earth. By this it means all things, everything, the entire universe, everything that exists was created by God. All spiritual beings, all physical material beings, everything, everybody, God created it. What does that mean? Everything and everybody owes God their allegiance. There is no thing and no body outside of God's will or purpose. And everything and everybody is his creation, his by right. So we all belong to God. We all depend on God for our existence. We all owe God our allegiance. All our achievements, all our talents, skills, possessions, ultimately belong to him and not to us. And no part of all of creation is unclaimed by God and uncontested by him. It's all his. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Formless, that means without structure. Empty, without content. God creates structure and content. Now look at verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He creates content, light, and then he separates light from darkness. He creates structure. And he does something else. You see this in verse 2 at the end, which is theologians have, have looked at every word in this verse for, for centuries because it's so rich. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, darkness could be some aspect of the primordial waste or emptiness before God. But it also, if you look at the the verses together here, refers to God's hiddenness. Again and again in the Bible, God is referred to as hidden in darkness, that is, uh, unapproachable by us, invisible to us, so far or transcendent from us that we cannot see him. But to God, darkness is as light. And so the sense that you can get from these verses is that God is beginning to interact with his creation. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The deep there is the ocean, the sea, that to the Semitic mind was a source of chaos and disorder and and dark foreboding, ships disappearing and never coming back. And actually, at the end of the Bible in Revelation, there is a promise there will be no sea in the new heavens and new earth. So here you have God existing in the abyss, in the void, in the waste, completely self-sufficient, and creating and beginning to bring order and content and form to that which was without it. And there's a repetition here. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God is not material. God is spirit. That's why he's unapproachable by us. But hovering over the waters. This is the word used of uh, a bird that is brooding its chicks and protecting them. Or an eagle that is stirring its young to take flight and to go out into the world. God begins to reveal himself as he interacts with this new creation. And when he says, let there be light, he is revealed to all that there is. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God speaks, and his word has power to create something completely new. And God's word reveals God to his creation. And not only brings structure and order, it also brings revelation. So that God can now be encountered or known or seen for the first time. God called the light day and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Look at the incredible compression here. We've gone from this vast inhuman scale of the creation of all things. The cosmological metaphysics of creation to the utterly mundane human experience of morning and evening from galaxies and supernovas to coffee and bagels. In one verse, it tells you that the Bible is not particularly interested in cosmology and astrophysics. It wants to get to the people. It wants to get to the earth. It wants to get to the story of God's interaction with the earth. And that's its primary focus. 
So what do we have in these verses? How should we respond to them? Well, I think each of us responds in a different way. I'm sure you have an idea or a thought or a stream of consciousness in your head right now. But just notice some of the elements. The picture of God here is majestic and sublime. There's a simplicity and directness about how God goes about creating. He's infinite, he's omnipotent, and he's awe-inspiring. One theologian referred to this aspect of God as the mysterium tremendum, the encounter with this omnipotent, infinite, omniscient God, a mysterium tremendum that overwhelms human imagination. Because here you have an utterly self-sufficient God who exists and can exist untroubled by the terrible darkness of the void and the abyss when there is nothing. This is the God of awe and majesty. This is the God that comes to mind when you see sunlight streaming through a great cathedral in Europe. Or you look at the Grand Canyon. And if we only had Genesis 1, that's the only kind of God that we could worship. Distant, terrifying, awe-inspiring, wonderful, perfect, beautiful, but unapproachable. What could we do in relationship to such a God? I knew this God when I was a kid. When I was a child, before I'd read the Bible or heard about Christianity or been to the church, whenever I was afraid or angry or scared or I'd been humiliated or punished, which was often, I would go to the highest place I could find. Uh, I'd climb out onto the, the mossy roof of our house, or there was a, there was a big weeping willow tree at the end of the garden. I would climb as high as I could in the branches. Or in the woods, there was a, a bare hill surrounded by trees, and I would lay in the heather there. And I'd look up in the sky and just be silent. And I'd look into that infinite blue, it got better when I started sailing. I could see that distant horizon. And something about that extraordinary beauty would calm me and relax me. And I would stay there until the fear was gone away or the anger was gone away. And if you'd asked me what I was doing, I would have been embarrassed. I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I wouldn't have said I had a single thought or formed idea in my head at the time. I would have been embarrassed if you had, had come, across, uh, come across me. It wasn't until I became a Christian that I realized what I was doing. David wrote about it in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where the voice is not heard. Instinctively, intuitively, without any guidance, without any education or discussion, I was listening to my creator speak to me. 
although I don't remember thinking anything, although I couldn't have put it in words, I had no vocabulary or, or way of thinking about what was happening, I knew, looking up at that blue sky and sometimes looking up at the stars, that behind the order and beauty of our world, there was something greater. There was somebody majestic, something, somebody, I don't know, but some untouchable potency, a perfection, something awe-expiring, a distant benevolence that had no name, but whose benevolence I felt and was calmed by and comforted by. Now, it took me 30 years to find out the name. It happened when I read the Gospel of John the first time. And I recognized him immediately. As soon as I read the, the Gospel of John, I recognized him. And it turned out he did have a name. Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you the first part of the Gospel of John and see if you can pick up the echoes of Genesis 1. This is, in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. In the beginning, same start, same word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Do you see the echo? Surely John, who knew Genesis, was writing those words because he'd met Jesus. And he saw the connection. And he recognized that Jesus was God's light. That Jesus was God's revelation to the world. His communication, God coming close, because God is speaking to us through the heavens, but also through Jesus, ordering it to its purpose, communicating, revealing. It's interesting that John calls Jesus the Word. It's a Greek word, logos from which we get our English word logic. Jesus, John is saying here, is the logic behind the order of the world. In one of his letters to the Colossian church, Paul puts it this way. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. He is the logic behind the way things are. He is the reason that the world makes sense. He is the reason that it is rational and orderly and beautiful. And that means, by the way, that any philosophy, religion, 
or culture any idea claim to wisdom that does not include Jesus Christ is limited. It's never going to be comprehensive. It is false or illogical in some way because Jesus is the logic of the world, the creator of everything. But here's the miracle. He didn't stay distant. Remember that little boy looking up at that blue sky, recognizing the beauty and the wonder and the benevolence? But how does a little boy gain access? How do you communicate with a blue sky? You can't. The beauty behind that blue sky has to communicate with us. The Word became flesh. God became one of us in Jesus the word beca- this is John. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is about the most outrageous claim of Christianity right there. That this transcendent God, the creator of all things, came from We don't know where, a place that is so inaccessible we can't even imagine. Became one of us, became a human being. The heavens declare the glory of God, but so does Jesus. And all that potency and creativity and beauty became a human being that we could talk to, that we could learn from, that we could walk with, that we could follow. Jesus Christ is the great curtain of creation being drawn aside so that we can be invited in. And that's the miracle. In the letter to the Philippian church, Paul says this, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is perhaps the most outrageous claim. This was the one that drove away a lot of the early disciples. The idea that this glorious, perfect, holy, unimaginable God would not only humble himself and become finite, a human being, but he'd let himself die such a terrible, ignominious death on a cross like a criminal. Even the disciples, the twelve, doubted. Thomas wasn't sure until he saw the resurrected Jesus And he had to put his fingers in the wounds of his resurrected body before he could believe. And then he said, my Lord and my God, and he he wept and he knelt down before him. Until you see Jesus as this amazing wonder and beauty, becoming ugly and suffering and dying for you, you're never going to be able to really worship. And I think this side of heaven, we never really going to be able to worship. 
One day, every Christian is going to see Jesus face to face. That's promised. And there will be beauty, and there will be celebration, and there will be wonder, and there will be awe. But I believe there will be something else as well. I think each of us is going to see those wounds. And not just wounds in general. I think we're going to see the wound and the pain that we personally cause Jesus. And it's going to be right there in front of us when we meet him. And it is going to break our hearts. And only then will we truly love and worship. And only then will all the remaining bitterness in our lives and our hearts be washed away forever. And everything will be perfect again. That's the promise of the Christian gospel. The creator who made everything, but was willing to be unmade so that you could join him forever. It's the story that will unfold through the rest of the Bible and through Genesis as we look at it. Let's pray right now. Gracious Father, we thank you that though you are the majestic creator of all things, you are also willing to draw close in Jesus. Close enough to be kissed and betrayed. Close enough to suffer along with us. Close enough, Lord, to feel our pain. But teach us what it means to worship you truly. Teach us what great cost we are brought in to your family and into your church. Lord, fill us with wonder and awe. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.